0: Welcome. Today we're in Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 16 to 21 and it's the second part of this message and I'm deliberately spending a lot of time on this concept, this teaching of repentance and we'll get into it in a minute. We'll first do a memory verse. So you ready? Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, as I said last week, it's the whole thing about being a Christian. It's not us working. We rest in Christ. We rest in God and God does the work through us. And so, if we're striving, doing things in our own strength, we won't last very long. But if we rest, if we say, I can't, but God can, and we allow God to live his life through us, being submitted to the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, then it's much nicer and much better. So, let's pray. Father, give us wisdom. Lord, teach us. Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, he would... Teach us, and so we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us this morning what these scriptures mean and how to apply them to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 All right, so just going to quickly revise last week. So, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is being called to be a watchman to warn people that people are going to die. Because of their sin. And we went through, well, why do they need warning? And so we just basically went through the gospel last week. So the first point there is God's heart for mankind is love and compassion. For all these things, he went through quite a few scriptures from all over the Bible and saw this is throughout the whole Bible. It's an overarching theme. So God's heart for mankind is love and compassion. God desires for all people to be in a relationship with him because he loves us. Secondly, God created everyone to be in a relationship with him. That is our purpose in life, to bring him glory. And that's where we find our ultimate source of satisfaction, joy, peace, love, and contentment. Then, Adam's sin caused all people to be born as sinners. So all people are born with a corrupted sin nature. We're born in the nature of the fallen or sinful Adam, not the perfect Adam. And that's what we call the human nature or sinful nature. We also learnt that God is holy, perfectly holy, so he can't look upon sin at all. Sin has separated us from God, and we are actually born separated from God as his enemies. That's the opposite to what the psychologist would tell you, that we're all actually born good, but our environment causes us to go bad. Humanly speaking, the situation is hopeless. We cannot save ourselves, and we have a debt that we cannot pay. However, Jesus is the Lamb who took away the sins of the world. And when Jesus came, it was God dealing with our sin problem by becoming sin for us. God himself became the sacrifice or payment for our sins. And in doing so, he paid a debt that he didn't owe. Very unfair, but I'll accept that. Uh, This gift of forgiveness and eternal life is received by both repentance and belief. So repentance being a change of heart towards God that results in us turning from sin and turning to God. And belief being a trust in the fact that Jesus' blood, his giving of his... Human life as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind was a full payment for all of our sins. So we're going to dig in to repentance this week. What does this change of heart look like? What is this change of heart? What has it changed from? What does it change to? Now let's read Ezekiel three sixteen through 21 Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, You shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, notice that to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity or sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn back from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, turn back, repent, He shall die in his iniquity, his sin, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous man should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning. He repented. Also, you will have deluded your soul. So, last week I touched on this. God sets the example. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. God, in the Garden of Eden, was the first watchman, so to speak. As an analogy, he warned Adam of the consequences of sin. Sin being rebellion against God. And after that, God has been faithful to send prophets and priests to warn people of the deadly consequences of sin in the Old Testament. And now we have teachers and pastors and, of course, us as individuals to warn those around us as well. Now, I spoke about the Garden of Eden and the warning there. I just want to point out that Jesus also spoke often about sin and hell. When he was on the earth... He often talked about hell. He often talked about sin, the consequences of sin. And I was thinking about it. People were attracted to Jesus, but they were not attracted to his message. So the gospel message is like a rose. It's beautiful, but it has thorns. (laughs) So the fact that God loves us and has demonstrated such great love toward us is truly beautiful, but the humility and the raking that is required to first recognize and admit our sinfulness is painful and the world doesn't want to come to that place of brokenness of spiritual poverty as we'll learn about later john 7 verse 7 jesus is speaking to his unbelieving brothers and he says the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify of it that its works are evil so when we're sharing the gospel, if we're going to be like Jesus, what do we do? Testify that its works are evil. The Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, part of the Holy Spirit's role in the church age, the New Testament, is to convict the world of sin. John 16, 8 and 9. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me. So that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the entire Bible, God sends prophets and again teachers to warn people about sin and its consequences. So, why is repentance so important? Well, if you don't repent, you're not saved. It's as simple as that. Jesus said it himself. Luke 13, to five. This is a situation where Jesus is teaching, and someone interrupts his teaching, and this is what happened. They were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That literally means they were killed. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they are worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And when Jesus repeats stuff, you know it's important. So there's two incidents Jesus refers to, the murder of Jews and mingling their blood with the sacrifice. The other incident is something they all knew about, they could all relate to, is this collapsing tower and it killed 18 people. So what was Jesus' purpose in talking about these two incidents where people were killed unexpectedly? The main point is that he says in verse 2, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? No, they weren't. I tell you, no. They weren't killed, they didn't suffer because they were worse than anyone else. Interesting, isn't it? David Guzik brings out the directness and honesty of Jesus' teaching on repentance from sin. I'm just going to quote from him. We normally think of some people as good And some people as bad and find it easy to believe that God should allow good things to happen to good people and bad things to bad people. Jesus corrected this thinking. But Jesus' point was not that the Galileans in question were innocent. His point was that they were simply not more guilty or worse sinners than the others. All were and are guilty. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In analyzing the issue, Jesus turned his focus from the question, why did this happen, which is what we always ask, isn't it? Something bad happens, why did it happen? He turns it around and he makes it the question, what does this mean to me? Well, it means that we all may die at any time, so repentance must be a top priority. Those who died in both of these instances did not think that they would die soon, but they did. And we can suppose that most of them were not ready. Because Jesus says you will all likewise perish if you don't repent, you see. So unless you repent, unless you repent, it repeats that. But it's actually two different verbs there. He says, by noting the ancient Greek grammar, we see that Jesus here mentioned two kinds of repentance. Both are essential. Luke 13.5, unless you repent, describes a once and for all repentance. That's your initial repentance that brings you into salvation. And the verb tense in Luke 13.3, unless you repent, describes a continuing repentance following salvation. And last week we talked about why as Christians we need to keep on repenting to maintain our relationship with God. Sin separates us and we repent of that sin which brings us back into fellowship with God. It's not about losing your salvation, it's about losing your joy of your salvation. Another thing that Jesus said about repentance is that true repentance will result in godly fruit being produced in our lives. And so I'm just going to keep on reading through the passage in Luke and read verses 6 through 9. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. What's he looking for? Fruit, yeah? And find none. So cut it down. Why does it use up the ground or waste the ground? But he answered and said to him, So let it alone this year or so until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well? But if not, after that you can cut it down. So basically, the fruit of our life shows what kind of person we really are. An apple tree will bring forth apples and not watermelons, for example, yeah? Pretty simple. If Jesus has touched our life, it will show in the fruit we bear, even if it takes a while for the fruit to come forth, okay? So sometimes it takes a while for the fruit to come. Some people change really quickly. Some people don't. But there must be change eventually. So out of this parable about repentance, we can get three main points. Jesus gives us three main points. Genuine repentance produces fruit. And what is the fruit? Fruit of the Spirit, righteous living, all those things. It's a changed life. And in one of the revivals, I think it was the Welsh Revival, the miners, they stole all the tools and then they got saved and they took them all back. And they had to put a sign on the door saying, or on the, on the tool shed saying, please do not return any more tools because there's no room for them. So it's a fruit of the Spirit, righteous living. And although God is very patient, he, in the parable, he waited three years, there will come a day of reckoning when those who do not produce fruit, that those who have not repented, will perish. And that means they'll be judged and sentenced to hell for eternity. There's a good parallel passage here, um, John 15, 1-6. You can read that in your own time. And the other main point here is that God, the good and compassionate gardener, does everything he can to get the tree or the person to produce fruit. So he'll fertilize, he'll dig. And what does that mean for us? We're going to find ourselves in the manure sometime, right? Because the manure makes us grow. Hard times, right? So, Spurgeon says there is a time for felling fruitless trees and there is an appointed season for hewing down and casting into the fire the useless, unrepentant, unfruitful sinner. Now, the main part of today, the main point of today is the characteristics of a repentant heart. What is a changed heart? What does it look like? How is it changed? What does it change from? How and why does my attitude towards God change? So the first part, is my new attitude, I go from pride to humility, I become poor in spirit, or I'm aware of my spiritual poverty. So the key here is we must first recognize our spiritual poverty, and you might ask, what do you mean by saying that I'm spiritually poor? Well, I'm going to help you understand by explaining first what it isn't, what's the opposite of being spiritually poor. It's when a person says, I'm a good person. This is the opposite of being spiritually poor. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Now, in the living waters way, the master of course, I'd recommend that if you haven't done it, you do it because it equips you to share the gospel the way Jesus did. And it opens with the question, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Why? Because that's the question or the concept that Jesus first approached the rich young ruler with. Now, what do you think people are going to say when you ask them if they're a good person? Well, of course I am. (laughs) If you don't believe me, go and ask someone. Ask someone you work with. Do you think you're a good person? Of course. Even if they've been drinking on the weekend, they're still going to say, yeah, I'm a good person. So, the rich young ruler is a stereotype of the prideful, unsaved person who is full of themselves when it comes to their own estimation of their moral goodness. So, we're going to see how quickly Jesus lovingly destroys this young man's concept of his own moral goodness by shining the light of God's moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, into the young man's heart and thereby exposing the inky blackness of sin that he was previously blind to. So what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? To reveal sin. So the Ten Commandments are a summary description of God's goodness, perfection and purity. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, We've all broken God's law. The law reflects who God is. It's his perfection. He never lies. He's pure. He's holy. So, do you think Jesus was helping this guy's self-esteem? Do you think he felt better? We're going to read it soon. I'm assuming you know the story of the rich young ruler. But just think about this as we read it in a second. His self-esteem, was it built up or torn down? (laughs) And what's more important? Flattering someone by going along with the lie that they are a morally good person, and then by building up their esteem of their own sinful self, Self esteem or shining God's moral law into their hearts and showing them the truth, their moral depravity. So I call it moral flattery the assumption that man is basically good at heart, and the atheists will say that all men are born good but are corrupted by their environment, and that's one of the core tenets of atheism and psychology. So, in that respect, psychology is actually the enemy of the gospel. It's the opposite. It teaches the opposite. of What the gospel teaches about who we are as a person. So let's have a look at what Jesus did. Did he flatter him or did he tell him the truth? So Matthew 19, 16 to 22, the story of the rich young ruler. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now in here I've put a little note to explain this. So translate this into our language, our thoughts. How good do I need to be, to be good enough to be accepted by God? <laughs> this is a works-based false gospel. How good do I need to be? What good things do I need to do to be accepted by God? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. So here Jesus is correcting the man's understanding of good. If only God is good, then man isn't. Now, do you think this young man's going to get the hint? Not yet. Jesus continues, But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? He's trying to justify himself. Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Jesus here uses a moral law or Ten Commandments as a measure of absolute moral goodness or perfection. And when any of us compare ourselves to these laws, God's standard, we're all going to fall short. We're all going to fail. I think everyone's broken all of them, at least in their heart. Verse 20, the young man said to Jesus, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Wow. Wow. He was so blind to the reality of the condition of his sinful heart. He just claimed to be morally perfect, to be as righteous as God. This is the pride of our sinful human nature. We think we are really good people. So Jesus deals with this guy in love. And he says to him, If you want to be perfect, verse 21, Go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So Jesus is applying the first and second commandments to the young man, that is, to have no other gods and do not have any idols. Exodus 23 and 4. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So basically Jesus said to him, do not commit idolatry and Want well, the young man to prove to him that he wasn't an idolater, that money wasn't his God. That was his choice. He had to choose his money or choose God. So basically, Jesus asking him to give up his possessions was asking him to repent of his sin of idolatry of money, materialism, so he could be saved, but he couldn't. And why couldn't he be saved? Well, his money was more important than God. And therefore, more important than eternal life with God. Again, the familiar message <laughs> repent or perish. Remember how Jesus said, If you keep your life, you will lose it, but if you lose your life, you will find it. And you find that in Matthew 16 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, this means to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin in this world. Just like the rich young ruler here wanted to continue to enjoy his money. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And that means to suffer for eternity in the lake of fire and hell. But whoever loses his life, that is, they give up the temporary pleasures of sin. The rich young ruler, he would have been willing to give up his money. For my sake will find it. And that means Inherit eternal life. He will find life. Verse 26 is powerful. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What did Jim Elliott say? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, but gains what he cannot lose. Very wise man. So again, repentance is presented here as a matter of eternal life and death. And Jesus asked a question here, a very important question. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Literally, in exchange for his soul. And for the rich man, it was his money. That's it. His money was more important than eternal life. Now, for other people, it's going to be different things. Family, career, romantic relationships, love, sex, fame, power, pleasure, you know, self-indulgence lifestyle so notice that jesus coming back to our question about the self-esteem jesus did burst the young man's self-esteem bubble and bruised his ego but in doing so the hard ground of his heart was plowed or softened so he'll be more receptive to hear receive and understand the word of god in the future now in your own time you can read the parable of the soils in matthew 13. So who knows what happened to this guy? We don't know if he did repent eventually. But from what Jesus spoke to him, he now had the chance to honestly evaluate his life, his heart, and to spend time considering what was most important, eternal life with God or his money. So Jesus really did him a big favor. And that's what we need to do when we share the gospel, is be honest with people. They might not accept it straight away. They might not like it straight away. But they can go back and they can think about it. You may ask, how can people be so blind to their sinfulness? The Bible gives the answer in Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, this spiritual pride, is this just among unbelievers? Or is it among believers as well? Mm. The Bible says that spiritual blindness, spiritual pride, would be the chief characteristic of the Last Days Church, the Church of Laodicea. So I'll just read that to you. It's Revelation three fourteen to 19. So this is not just unbelievers. This attitude of complacency and I'm okay, you're okay type thing, it affects us in the church today especially in a materialistic culture. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, and listen here, I am rich. Again, this is the opposite of spiritual poverty. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And what's the divine diagnosis? And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So, Jesus is counseling today's church, the majority of today's church, who have this attitude. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold under the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And verse 19 is important. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten or discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent, turn back, have a change of heart. (laughs) So why do you think there is so much sin in the church presently. You know, people are living together, there's homosexual pastors and homosexual marriage then female pastor drunkenness, adultery, divorce, lying, other sexual sins like pornography and lust are very common. Gossip and greed. Just consider as you've been about the place, have you noticed that the modern gospel does not emphasize the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God, or repentance? meaning to turn from sin and turn to God. Do you reckon that might be one of the reasons there's so much sin in the church? Now how many churches would be like Jesus and be honest with the enthusiastic yet unrepentant young man teaching that if you're not willing to repent that means turn from sin and turn to God then you cannot be saved. So basically today we have a watered down gospel commonly called the prosperity gospel which minimizes sin, and instead of the message being, you must be saved from your sin, and Jesus died for you, paying the price for your sin, the focus is now on what material benefits, temporary benefits, a person can receive in this life. Health, wealth, happiness, etc. And they do that to attract them to the church without having to offend them with talking about sin and repentance. So people are encouraged to pray the sinner's prayer, but not to repent. So, the question is, and we're going to talk about this next week do you think that many of these so called believers are actually saved? Do you think that as a result of this watered down gospel, that many of our churches may be filled with false converts? People who have made a profession of faith but have never actually repented. So, again, we'll come back to that next week. So, what does the Bible say about our true condition? Why do we need to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, this is the key here what does the bible say about us all right christians yes we have a new nature but we still also have in us the old nature and there's this battle going on inside of us every day as a christian as a believer do i want to follow the old nature or do i want to follow the new nature the old man or the new man the flesh or the spirit and romans 7 accurately describes this, or clearly describes this. It says in Romans 7:18 to 20 from the NLT paraphrase, And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So, before I am saved, how much moral goodness is in me? None. Yeah. Am I a good person? Before Christ? Absolutely not. There's nothing good lives in me. And listen to what it says. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Even if I want to, according to my conscience, I can't. If I'm not walking in the spirit, I just can't do it. My sinful nature is in control. It's got me. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong that is a new part of me that loves God. It is sin living in me that does it. This is the battle, yeah? So, the summary from that verse, nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. So, just how bad is my corrupted fallen, sinful human nature? Romans three nineteen to 20 From the NLT again. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people Whether Jews or Gentiles, and Gentiles meaning non Jews, are under the power of sin. Ah, So, what is it? All people are under the power of sin. That's why when you go back to Romans 7, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. Yeah? Going back to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as the scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Whose perspective is this from? Our perspective or God's perspective? God's, yeah. So he sees the heart. Um, This is not saying that everything everyone does is always a lie, that no one ever tells the truth, but it's talking about the motives of the heart the attitudes of the heart toward God. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Very important, they have no fear of God. They don't care. Verse 19, Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So, I love Romans. It's what I think is the clearest and most detailed description of the gospel in the whole Bible. Why is it so good? Because it goes to such great lengths and so clearly describes why we need a saviour. We need to be saved from sin in three ways. So I'll just go through these three ways. The first one is justification, the penalty of sin. What is justification? It's just if I'd never sinned. I'm declared innocent. My debt is paid because Jesus died on the cross in my place. Then there's sanctification. This is the power of sin has been broken. This is where God changes me into the image of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. From glory to glory, it says in Corinthians. It's an ongoing process. Starts today we're saved and finishes the day we die. It's victory over sin. Then finally, we are glorified. And this is being removed from the presence of sin or saved from the presence of sin. When we get our resurrection body, which will happen at the rapture, I believe we will be free from our sinful nature. The sinful nature will be no more. It's attached to this physical body. So when I leave this physical body, I am free from the presence of sin. I'm saved from the presence of sin. No more struggle against sin. Now, going back to the law, what's the purpose of the law? It's to keep people from having excuses and to show the world is guilty before God. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So when you're sharing the gospel with people the people you meet on the street or your family or whoever it might be, your friends we need to use the Ten Commandments to show people how holy God is and therefore in contrast how sinful man is. And only then will people see the need for a saviour to save them from their sin. So Now we can start to understand the idea of spiritual poverty, or moral bankruptcy as some people call it. It's a term, spiritual poverty is a term used to describe just how completely corrupted my sinful nature is that I inherited from Adam. Remember it said, I don't know that nothing good lives in me. And also my moral depravity, all people are under the power of sin. No one is righteous, not even one. That was Romans 3. So Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes that only the poor in spirit would inherit the kingdom of heaven. That means to be saved. And a while ago, I was listening to teaching on the Beatitudes. This is actually a description of how a person is saved and then grows into the image of Christ. We don't have time to go through the whole lot now, but I'm just going to go through the first two Beatitudes and these two things explain repentance to come to christ and then repentance to maintain fellowship with god so matthew 5 verses 3 and 4 it says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so what does this mean blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven once i realize or recognize and accept that I am a wretched sinner, i'm morally bankrupt, I have no goodness in me i'm guilty of countless crimes against god's holy moral law, and therefore fully deserving of spend eternity, suffering the lake of fire or hell, then I become poor in spirit that's exactly what it means. I am now poor in spirit, and it's only in this state of utter hopelessness and despair that I will be willing to repent of my sins. And then be able to genuinely cry out to God, please save me from my sins. When we really see our need. And the result is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I am now saved. Jesus, when he convicted the rich young ruler of his sin, was trying to bring him to this place of being poor in spirit, of being humble before God. So that's repentance that leads to salvation. Then it says in verse 4 Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. So, what happens when I begin to see just how morally poor or sinful or depraved I am? I begin to mourn over my sin. My sin starts to make me sad, not glad. You know, people are unsaved, they like sinning, it's fun for them. But for the Christian, we should be mourning over our sin. It should make us sad and not glad. We should be grieving over the terrible state of our hearts. Or I'll say, put it personally, I should be grieving over the terrible state of my heart and sinful heart. Okay, Even as a Christian, sin can harden my heart. So what happens? I shall be comforted. Now, I'll put it this way. Do you realize that the dark valley of repentance leads to the mountain of rejoicing and joy? The dark valley of repentance leads to the mountain of rejoicing and joy. The more I choose to repent, the closer I draw near to God and the more of his peace, love and joy I experience. And that's why it's worth experiencing the pain of repentance, of having to give up those things, of having to, in the rich young ruler's case, get rid of his money, the stuff that he enjoyed. So I'm going to leave you guys to continue going through the the Beatitudes. I've left a note there in your notes, how to find the resources. Now, with this new attitude of being poor and there comes new priorities. We have a different way of thinking. The old things we used to consider were important are not as important anymore. And the things we didn't consider important, they become important because we changed attitude. We're now poor in spirit. So I'll just say this again. Once I realize that without God I am spiritually bankrupt, that I'm completely and totally morally depraved, and because of that I'm headed to hell, are we much more willing to make the hard choice to leave the things of this world behind so I can receive eternal life with God. So being poor in spirit naturally leads us and explains this second characteristic of a repentant heart, which is to have new priorities. We'll find out what they are in a minute. And we also understand why those who have not had the law of God shown in their hearts to convict them of their sins are not poor in spirit. And therefore, they are not likely to give up the old life and put Jesus first. They're not going to repent, you see. So, once you pour in spirit, you have new priorities. And what are these new priorities? Well, Luke 14 gives us the answer. In verses 15 to 24, I'm not going to read it, but it's a parable of the Great Supper. And basically, to bring it down into a 10 second thing, Jesus says salvation is an invitation that must be accepted. You can read that for yourselves. But then he goes on in the very next verse, in verse 25 and describes the cost of accepting the invitation. So salvation is an invitation that must be accepted. It's free. But as someone said, salvation is free but it will cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life as you know it. So I'm going to read the following section after the invitation part and, and Jesus talking about the cost of accepting the invitation. Luke fourteen twenty-five 25-33 Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. In other words, a surrender. So, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, how many times did Jesus say, cannot be my disciple? Count it up. How many times is it? Three times, yep. Three times Jesus repeats, you cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus here defines exactly what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. Basically what it means to be saved. And so this is important. You're either a disciple or follower, a learner of Jesus, or you're not. You're either saved or you're not. And next week we'll talk about those who profess to be Christians, but don't produce fruit. So coming back to here, this text is very difficult. And some people have a lot of problems with this. But I just want to point out that Jesus is not saying we must, to be saved, literally hate our mother and father and brothers and sisters. Okay, It's a picture, and the people he was talking to would have understood it. Would have been difficult to accept, but would have been understood in this way. Jesus used the word hate to emphasize just how much stronger my allegiance, my devotion, or commitment to Jesus must be than to anyone or anything else, and including ourselves. Remember, Jesus never said that we should hate ourselves. So this is a picture showing that all other relationships must be of a much lower priority than faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. Spurgeon says, It is only in a comparative sense and not literally that the term can possibly be used. And to make this very clear, Christ said that we are to hate our own life. So we're not meant to hate ourselves. But we are meant to love Christ more than we love ourselves. So what's the important principle here? Well, true repentance is the decision I must make to love and obey Jesus and make him the most important part of my life, the highest priority. And you know, it's so easy to make other things, even good things, right? Family, money, career, ministry even, friends, sport, entertainment. Anything that is not submitted to Jesus, anything that we esteem as more important to Jesus, anything that we're not willing to give up for Jesus is what? It's an idol, right? What was he idol for the rich young man? His money, yeah. Okay. Could he be saved? If he gave it up, he could be saved, yeah. If he put God first, you see, that's his change of heart. He's putting God first. Why? Because you're poor in spirit. You don't want those other things anymore because they're not valuable to you because you know your eternal destiny. So Jesus goes on to say, and he uses two different examples, that before a person repents, they must first sit down and count or consider the cost. Basically, the pros and cons. What's the benefits? What's the cost-benefit analysis of being an unbeliever? And what's the cost-benefit analysis of being a believer? And the war example is really good. I really like this. The king with less troops considers that he will lose the war. I mean, if you've got ten thousand troops and someone's got twenty thousand, that's two to one. You're probably not going to win that war, right? There's an analogy here. And the king with less troops seeks terms of peace. So the spiritual application here is that without repentance, without forsaking all, I cannot be saved, and therefore I will end up condemned forever in hell. In other words, I lose. I'm considering what I'm up against? And I lose. Eternity in hell. So this is the cost of not repenting. I therefore seek terms of peace with God while I have the chance. So in this life. So while it's a long way off, while the enemy is a long way off, I seek terms of peace. So in this life, before I die, I have the opportunity to seek terms of peace with God. Now what are God's terms of peace? I love it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We just receive. That's it. So, becoming a Christian is more than just saying a prayer. It's not just making a profession of faith. And now, when you're sharing with your friends and family, be careful make sure that they are aware of exactly what becoming a Christian will cost them. Okay, It's going to cost them their flesh life. It means they have to forgo living a life that seeks to please the desires of their sinful nature. They can't just do what they want to do anymore. They have to be submitted to what God wants them to do. To be saved, they must be willing to give up that relationship with a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend or separate from the person they are living with but not married to give up addiction to drugs, alcohol, gaming, and gambling. So the changes may not happen all at once, but a genuine Christian, someone who has genuinely repented of their sins and is born again, will over time change to become more like Christ. And as Christians, sometimes we can fall into sin. If we want to come back into fellowship, the same is true. Okay? We need to give up the sin to draw near to God. Repent. So it's so important to remember that repentance for salvation is only to be willing to change. Okay, We don't change ourselves to be good enough to be accepted by God. I come to Jesus understanding I can't go to heaven as I am. And so I understand that God will have to change me once I am saved. And I repeat this, it's only once I am saved that God begins to change or transform me. He takes us as we are all the dirt, all the sin. He just accepts us as we are. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us, demonstrating his love for us. So I don't have to clean up my life or try to change before I ask God to forgive me. I'm simply giving God permission to change me. I have humbled myself before God, saying, not my will, but yours be done. I give you control of my life. Jesus, you are my Lord, my master. A couple of scriptures to emphasize this. To prove this, the Bible teaches this. Philippians 1 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you at the moment of salvation will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, that is, the day I die, when he comes back for me. Philippians two thirteen, for it is God who works in you, believers, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So repentance is a costly business. If I do choose to repent, then Yes, it's hard work. I will have to humble myself and I will have to forego things that do bring me short term pleasure. It's true. But the eternal benefits clearly outweigh the short term cost. So, a quick summary for today a summary of the characteristics of a repentant heart. True repentance that is, what is repentance? Turning from sin and turning to God starts with becoming poor in spirit. That is, we accept that we are morally bankrupt, that nothing good lives in me, in my sinful human nature. It is the purpose of the Ten Commandments, God's perfect moral law, to show every person that they are guilty before God and cause them to be poor in spirit, if they accept it. Secondly, true repentance is choosing to make loving and obeying Jesus the most important part of my life. My first priority, remember, what Jesus said, not my will, but God's will be done. Having an attitude of complete submission or surrender to God's will. Thirdly, true repentance is being willing to forsake the temporary pleasures of this life so I can enjoy eternal life with God. The fruit of repentance is a changed life. And lastly, fourthly, initial repentance and belief results in salvation, that once and for all repentance, but then continued repentance, turning from and dealing with sin on a continual basis, is required to maintain my fellowship with God. Not my salvation, but my fellowship with God. And why, this is really important, my obedience or repentance or turning from sin is motivated by love. It's motivated by my love for Christ because of what he has already done for me at the cross. If he's done all that for me, then why wouldn't I be willing to give these things up for him? It's not works, it's grace. And we do it out of a thankful heart. Father, thank you for this very freeing message, Lord. It's not about what we have to do to change. We can't change ourselves. A leopard can't change its spots. But Lord, like the leopard would need a new skin, we need a new heart, and that's exactly what you do. You give us a new heart, and you make us a new person. And so I thank you for what you've done, Lord, help us to be careful when we're sharing the gospel that we use the law, the Ten Commandments, to show people their sin, to cause them to be poor in spirit, and then they will have different priorities. They will start having eternal priorities instead of temporary priorities. They'll put you first and not the things of this world. So we just pray these things. And also, lastly, just help us to put this into practice, to be mourning over our sin, to be sad when we sin and not glad to not enjoy it, but to mourn over it. And we'll deal with it, we'll get rid of it, we'll turn from it and enjoy a closer, more intimate relationship with you. Because that's your will for us, our sanctification. Amen.